0: I'm going to ask you to do two things: take out your Bible, turn to Romans 15 verse four, Romans 15:4, and then obviously to take out your hymnal, or if you have another version of looking at your confession. And we're going to be in paragraph eight of chapter one. My plan is to get through all of paragraph eight, though it is a longer paragraph. Just by way of review, what have we seen so far in the first seven uh, paragraphs of chapter one? And I'm going to follow uh, Dr. Waldron's outline that he gives. I think it's a very helpful outline to just navigate the path that our confession uh, draws upon. Uh, Paragraph one begins with the necessity or the indispensability of Scripture, why we absolutely must have Scripture. Paragraphs two and three focus on the identity of Scripture, where, where I focused on the, the canon especially, what the Scripture is composed of and what it is not composed of. Paragraphs 4 and 5, we look at the authority of Scripture, and there we kind of focus in on the, the nature of Scripture being self-authenticating, because there's no higher authority than Scripture itself. Paragraph 6, we looked at the sufficiency of Scripture. We talked about how Scripture is sufficient, but it's not Omnisufficient. There are still matters that it does not uh, speak to, that we need the light of nature for. And so we spoke of it's not omnisufficient, but it's sufficient for that which it was intended. And then this last time we looked at paragraph 7, we looked at the clarity of Scripture, or the perspicuity of Scripture is the fancy term. This is just speaking to the clarity of the Scriptures in the subjects that are necessary It's not to say that all things in Scripture are clear. The Apostle Peter says as much about the writings of Paul. But what is necessary to be known are clear. What we're going to look at in paragraph 8 this morning is the accessibility of Scripture. The accessibility of Scripture. This will get into the idea of the preservation of Scripture, the transmission, and, and, and also the availability or just, again, the accessibility that you have Uh, scripture in your own language and now we can go further and you have a copy of it in your own lap or on your phone and devices like that. So we're going to delve into that a bit. So let's begin reading paragraph eight of our confession in chapter one. The Old Testament in Hebrew which was the native language of the people of God of old and the New Testament in Greek which at that time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentic. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have a right unto and interest in the Scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation into which they come that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. Now I told you to turn to Romans 15:4 because I want you to see that this doctrine of the accessibility the preservation of scripture is not necessarily a doctrine that is uh, expressly, contain, or expressly set down, but one that's necessarily contained. We, we, we kind of looked at that already in um, uh, paragraph six or seven about how do we understand Scripture. It's either expressly set down or the, the necessary infer, inference, what's the necessary consequence. So if you look at chapter uh, 15, verse four of Romans, it says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Now this verse has nothing to do with the accessibility of Scripture except the necessary consequence that without the implications of this doctrine that we just read about, this verse would make no sense. Which is to say that Romans 15.4 could not be true if Scriptures were contaminated, if they were inaccessible, if they weren't transmitted properly, If they weren't passed down generation to generation, then the Apostle Paul could not say for whatever things were written before were written for our learning. You can't learn from it if it's not there. The implication is that this doctrine is a necessary consequence of just the nature of Scripture itself. Now, others will point to passages about the doctrine of preservation. Some would look at uh, Jesus who says... Uh, my words, uh, you know, not one jot or tittle will pass away before all the law is fulfilled. There are, there are passages that might indicate this concept of preservation, but I think they, 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 they don't really speak to the issue of the written revelation of God so much as uh, just the general truth of God. And so uh, I, I'm leery about delving into all of those this morning. But what I want to do is just go through what the confession teaches and broadly point out two matters of accessibility. The first one we'll spend more time on because it's a bit controversial. It was controversial in the 1600s, and it's still controversial for today. Uh, so we'll, we'll be talking about the accessibility uh, of, and the preservation of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. But then, secondly, we'll talk about the, acce- um, the accessibility in modern translation or just in the English translation. So let's begin with looking at the accessibility of translation and transmission, especially as it regards to the Hebrew and Greek. There are two extremes we want to avoid as we pursue this topic. The first extreme is to say that Scripture has been lost. This is the extreme that you'll get from uh, modern critics of the Bible, Uh, some like Bart Ehrman, if you know that name. He is a uh, professor in uh, University of North Carolina, and he has done more to devastate the faith of of uh, young people coming out of a a Christian background going into that field, they hear some stats like this, right? Here's an Ehrman stat. That for every one word in the New Testament, there are three variants, three variations for the reading. That's a statistic that is statistically true, but it's just misleading in a a devastating way. So... uh, in other words, he's inferring that you can't know exactly what scripture says because there are three different words that it could be for each word of the Bible or New Testament. And so you have this one mentality that scripture has been lost. There's no way to have any accessibility to what is even written. The other extreme is that scripture is locked. I'm trying to be alliterate. I'm trying to alliterate, so probably a better term, but scripture is locked. And I mean locked in the sense that either it's locked in a translation, such as the Latin Vulgate, which is the Roman Catholic view. I'll I'll delve into that a little bit later. Or it's even locked in a particular uh, edition of the Greek New Testament. I didn't bring any with me, but I I guess I have uh, a few on my phone that I could pull up. Uh, they, They would say that it's locked into either the King James or what the King James came from, rather than all the manuscripts that have been gathered throughout church history. And I don't think that the confession is pointing to that either. And so what I want to help us understand, what I would call the confessional teaching, what, the, what I think the, the confession is, is, is pushing us towards, uh, in order to make a case for this, I want to lean on a, on a theologian named Francis Turretin. If you're familiar with the name, uh, if not, Francis Turretin wrote the Institutes of Alenctic theology. Uh, he wrote them in Latin. They've been translated. They came out, uh, the first volume came out two years after our confession was published. So uh, they, were, they were written around the same time. Uh, he, he is said to be uh, the, the pinnacle of Protestant scholastic theology. Very, uh, very succinct. But he covers almost every doctrine that you can think of. And so I want to lean on him as we go through this because the language that we see in our confession is going to be some of the language that he takes up. And it's also going to be the, some of the same language that the Roman Catholic Church will use as well. So it's not that our confession was written in a vacuum. They were using specific terms to make specific meanings and references. So uh, here, here's what I want to say, and I'm going to be leaning on Francis Turton. I'll be quoting him and then stopping and pausing to make explanation. So <clears throat> what I'm going to argue is that um, what the confession is teaching is that it does not refer to the uh, preservation of the original Writings of Scripture. When you read paragraph eight, we're not referring to you know, what Moses originally wrote. The original autograph has not been preserved. We understand that, and this has been commonly accepted throughout. So, Turton asks Have the original text of the Old and New Testament come down to us pure and uncorrupted? So, this is the question he asked. He says, By the original text, we do not mean the autographs written by the hand of Moses, of the prophets, and of the apostles. In other words, their original writing. He says, which certainly do not now exist. We mean their, and he uses the term apographs, not autographs, but apographs. Maybe not the best term, but that's what he's using here. Which are so called because they set forth to us the word of God in the very words of those who wrote under the immediate inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying that what we have access to is the apographs, In other words, the copies. What uh, some have copied and have copied and have copied and have copied. We have those. And he, here's, here's what he says. The question is, have the original text, namely the Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts, been so corrupted, he's talking about the copies now, either by copyists through carelessness or by the Jews and heretics through malice, that they can no longer be regarded as the judge of controversies and the rule to which all the virgins must be applied? He answers, the papist, the Roman Catholic Church, affirms, yes, we deny it. Now notice he only spoke to one of the two extremes I was talking about. The extreme that says Scripture is locked into the Vulgate, the Roman Catholic view. They say that because... One of the reasons the Roman Catholic Church will say that is because if you look at all the Greek transla- or all the Greek manuscripts and all the Hebrew manuscripts. There's so much controversy. There's so much conflict. There's so much corruption that we need the Church. They say to stabilize what is actually written in the Vulgate is that that uh, medium. Or you might go the Ehrman route that says there's just so many corruptions we just can't know. Okay, and and Turretin is saying no. We have access to the word of God. We deny that it has been so corrupted either through carelessness or through malice that they cannot be regarded as the judge of controversies. So uh, we would say that the doctrine of preservation teaches, and this is my words now, that God has preserved the words of God as authentic writings of the inspired word of God. Let me say that again because I'm drawing words from our confession to make a specific point. The doctrine of preservation teaches that God has preserved the words of God as authentic writings of the inspired word of God. Then Turton, because we're using the same language here, he asks, what is an authentic writing? What is an authentic writing? In other words, what is preserved? What is preservation? He says this, an authentic writing is one in which all things are abundantly sufficient to inspire confidence one to which the fullest credit is due in its own kind, one of which we can be entirely sure that it has proceeded from the author whose name it bears, one in which everything is written just as he himself wished. Now, just so we don't get confused with all these pronouns and, and whatnot, that what we have in our Bibles is exactly what Moses intended to be communicated, not just in the Hebrew, but now in the English translations. We're, uh, we're, we're going to go that far in our... Uh, confession in paragraph 8. He says, however, a writing can be authentic in two ways. Remember, the word is authentic. And if you want to see, that's what is used in our confession. He says, in the middle of the confession, that by a singular care and providence kept pure in all ages and therefore authentic. So this is, this is using the same language as the confession. He says, uh, uh, a writing can be authentic in two ways, either primarily and originally. The autograph, the original writing, or secondarily and derivatively. In other words, it's derived. So, first, that writing is primarily authentic, which is self authenticating as Scripture is, and to which credit is and ought to be given on its own account. So, the original writing of Genesis or Exodus, Leviticus, it's self authenticating, therefore it's authentic. But he says the secondarily authentic writings, are all the copies accurately and faithfully taken from the originals by suitable men. That's what our confession is looking towards. The autographs, the originals of the prophets and the apostles, are alone authentic in the first sense. In the latter sense, the faithful and accurate copies of them are also authentic, Turretin says. So when we talk about what is authentic, we're saying that what has been faithfully handed down through the copies, through the copies of copies, and yes, through the copies of the copies of the copies of the copies. Now, in our world, we think that is a very unstable process. And there is a deal of instability behind it, I will grant. Because we're humans. Humans make errors. Uh, I, don't, I didn't do the history of this, but does anyone know when uh, spectacles were invented to help us with vision? All right. I don't know when that was, but it, I mean, I'm going to say either late 19th or early 20th century invention. All right, somewhere around there, 1800s, 1900s. How about modern lighting? I mean, before that, everything was done either by the light of day or by candlelight. So there was a lot of reasons to think that there would be errors that would creep into these copies of copies of copies. But then you got to think: Did God not grant us with the ability of what we might call common sense to look at all these and say, "Yes, that's an obvious error"? Um, if you're ever typing on your computer. And you see someone misspell a word. And you think, how in the world did they spell that word like that? Where was their mind thinking? You realize, well, the letter that was pushed was right next to the letter that they intended to push on the keyboard. Common sense tells you exactly what it is. By the way, um, 99% of those errors that Earman was talking about, maybe 98% are those. Misspellings and things that you'd never even notice. So that just debunks a lot of that mess right there. So this is what um, Turretin, and I believe in that era of the 1600s, the Westminster Confession, the London Confession, this is what they're driving at, that we have what is kept pure in all of these copies that were uh, faithful and accurate copies. Uh, these are authentic. And so the language in our confession of are therefore authentic, this is, this is uh, what it, the reason it's being used is because this is what the Roman Catholics used. The Council of Trent, which began in 1545, in the first uh, session, met uh, uh, by the time it was finished in 1547, they produced documents. Then the entire council went on for another ten years. But the, the Council of Trent was the uh, response to the Reformation, and in that council that the Roman Catholics put out uh, in 1547, they claimed after they they stated their bloated canon, they listed. Uh, books that we reject as being canonical, they say this. They said, But if any one received not as sacred and canonical the the said books entire, with all their parts, talking about all the books that uh, we would reject, as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church, and listen to this, and as they are contained in the old Latin Vulgate edition, and knowingly and deliberately deliberately contemn um, contem- or condemn the translation or the tradition aforesaid, let him be anathema. Okay, so next time you feel like you have a bond with your Roman Catholic friend, just ask them, do you still support the Council of Trent? Because if so, they, numerous times that council says that we are anathema. It goes on to say, moreover, the same sacred and holy synod ordains and declares that the said old um, uh, in Vulgate edition, which by the length and use, uh, usage of so many years has been approved of in the church, be in public lectures, disputations, sermons, and expositions held as authentic. The Latin Vulgate they're saying. And no one is to dare or presume to reject it under any pretext whatever. What are they saying? What is our confession saying in paragraph 8? says, after it mentions, are therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. Notice they're arguing the same thing. We are arguing that if we want to appeal to scriptures to answer matters of controversy, what the Roman Catholics talk about in public lectures, disputations, sermons and expositions, Roman Catholics say, you go to the Latin Vulgate. The Protestant Reformation was saying ad fontes, to the sources. We go back to the original language, not to the translations, but to the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. This was was a a maxim, this was axiomatic for the Protestant Reformation. And even after that, in in what we would call the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment period, there was, in the 1600s and 1700s, there was a desire to go back to the sources, And that wasn't just in biblical studies, it wasn't everything. We don't want to read Plato in, in a translation, we want to read Plato in Plato's Greek, and so forth. This was, this was the mentality, so there was this, this reclaiming of the original sources and all avenues of, of, of scholarship and, and study. B.B. Warfield, if you're familiar with that name, he's written on the first uh, chapter of the Westminster Confession, He he described similarly preservation and transmission of the Hebrew and Greek this way. What mistakes uh, is in one copy is corrected in another was the proverbial philosophy of the time in this matter. And the assertion that the inspired text has, quote from our confession, by God's singular care and providence been kept pure in all ages, is to be understood not as if it affirmed that every copy has been kept pure from all error, And we know this to be true. We know, and if you've never collated manuscripts, if you've never compared manuscripts, by the way, I don't recommend you get into it because it's really boring. Um, But sometimes you have to do it as a project, and you get graded on that and so forth. So uh, if you ever get into it, yes, you right away realize that not one manuscript is identical to another. But like I said, we have common sense that comes to us from God. We call this the light of nature. We can figure out what these mistakes are. So uh, Warfield said, It is to be understood not not as if our confession affirms that every copy has been kept pure from all error, but that the genuine, namely authentic, text has been kept safe in the multitude of copies, so as never to be out of the reach of the church of God in the use of the ordinary means. This is why I greatly admire men and women who have dedicated their lives to the study of the original languages and to the acquisition of all the manuscripts that have been copied and recopied. There, there is a group called the Center of the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, uh, run by Dan Wallace, and their goal is to digitize as many Greek New, Ma- New Testament manuscripts that they can get their um, gloved hands on. because you. Dealing with ancient manuscripts, you got to make sure the oils from your skin don't touch the manuscripts. And you can go to their website, and you can actually look at these high-resolution digital manuscripts or uh, digital pictures of all the manuscripts. That way, we are moving into an era of preservation that's not just handwritten, but now they're digitized, so they're they're solidified in an ink that goes beyond uh, the little literal ink on a page. They're digitized forever. That's the kind of preservation that we have moved into in the twenty-first century. And so this would uh, speak to the ordinary means, what do we do? What do, we, do? we go uh, to these multitude of copies, and they're never out of reach to the church, Warfield says. We have access to them. He went on to explain that the, quote, pure text, unquote, lies therefore not in one copy, but in all, and is to be maintained not by simply reading the text and whatever copy may chance to fall into our hands, but by a process of comparison, which is when we apply the light of nature. We apply critical study. Um, A misunderstanding of this confession or this part of the confession has come up. And so what I'm about to say, it's controversial only because there are some, even dear brothers and sisters in our camp, uh, that take a slightly different view of what the confession means here. So there, there are what I would say is a misunderstanding of the confession. This is why I'm speaking to this. I think the misunderstanding is that when you look at paragraph 8 and it says the word pure, I think the misunderstanding is that the word pure is taken to be an adverb, which is to say that it's understood as not that the Hebrew and Greek are kept pure, but rather it is kept purely. In other words, the pure is describing the keeping, not necessarily the Old Testament or the New Testament, and I think that would be an incorrect reading. I think the mention of the Hebrew Old Testament the Greek New Testament in eight is not to specify a certain edition of the Hebrew or Greek editions, but rather speak to those writings over against other translations, such as the Latin Vulgate, uh, the uh, Greek Old Testament. We can use those, but they're not the final authority. We don't appeal to those when we're uh, solving dilemmas or we're uh, dealing with controversies of religion. Uh, I like to make use of the Syriac Peshitta because it's a very ancient translation, but it doesn't have final authority. Some would say the King James is the final authority. Some would say that the uh, Greek text underlying the King James is the final authority, but I don't think the confession is speaking uh, to those types of things. So the confession says that in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. What? The uh, The Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. There is a lot more that we could say about that, but I only have five more minutes to speak on translation. So let us move on then to the uh, scripture being accessible in vernacular translations. And there's not really a passage of scripture that we could appeal to, except this is a necessary consequence. But we could appeal to it in this way. The New Testament quotes from the Old Testament many times, but it's written in Greek. So what does it have to do? Translate. (laughs) Very good. It translates. And not only does it sometimes translate straight from the Hebrew, sometimes they borrow from an ancient translation known as the Greek Old Testament or even what's more narrowly called the Septuagint. The Septuagint, it's not determined the true history of it, and even when it was written, um, there's various views on that. But the point is, the New Testament does this it makes use of translation into the modern vernacular of the day. So the logic is simple. If it is the duty of every man or woman, and especially of the Christians, to read and make use of the Holy Scriptures, and since the Scriptures were written in dead languages unknown to most, each individual person is not charged to learn those uh, languages of Scripture. Rather, Special and appointed men are tasked with bringing those languages into the common vulgar tongues of humans. Education was such a major element in the, uh, the post-Enlightenment period, even the revolutionary era. Revolutionary era. Uh, uh, it was not just for knowledge's sake. Let's learn so we can learn. You know, a lot of the early readers and primers that were in the um, colonies, the main thrust of it was so that the children could be literate they can be literate so they can read the Bible. And in order for them to gain literacy and read the Bible, they had to have a Bible in the, tr- in the language that they spoke. And so we would say that to the extent that these translations convey the words and meanings of the Hebrew Old Testament of the Greek New Testament, they are inspired. We might call it a derivative inspiration, that they derive their inspiration from the Hebrew and Greek But I have no problem holding up this English copy, this English translation saying this is the inspired word of God. Because we understand it derives its inspiration from the original languages that it was translated from. And if there are matters of controversy, we might say, well, let's compare this translation to this translation. But ultimately, what are we saying? What does it mean in Hebrew? What does it mean in Greek? Because that's where the ultimate authority will lie. And so our confession says that thus... That the word of God dwelling plentifully in these English or in in the uh, vernacular translations. And so there's nothing wrong with with you who says, man, I really wish I had a knowledge of Greek. No. God may not have called you to learn these ancient dead languages, God has has gifted the modern church with, with translations. Make use of this. Uh, I, I've said it before to some, and I'll, I'll say it publicly. Though I study in Hebrew and Greek, I have found more value, theologically speaking, just reading it in English. Hearing it in my own mother tongue. Things will pop out at me that I, will, I wouldn't even see in the, other, in the, in the original languages. Don't, don't think that you are missing out on the Word of God because you don't have Hebrew or Greek. That's not the case. And this is what our confession is saying, that you have accessibility to the Word of God. This is authentic. Let's take up and read. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we are so thankful, especially in the 21st century, of all the modern conveniences and the embarrassment of riches that we have. Lord, there are literally no excuses for your people not to interact with Scripture whether they can hear it read to them online through audio versions or read various versions on their phone. Lord, we have uh, just a tremendous amount of, of, of biblical material before us. Lord, may we take up and read. And Lord, may we uh, uh, cherish your word and may it be a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.